Loitering in Wonderland Studios presents NyQuil and Cocaine, a face-off novelization. Chapter 3, Fruit-Eating Stamina. The choir music fades as we see Travolta in the middle of a pseudo-heated phone call. He's talking to someone named Victor and tells him, You can brand the Fourth Amendment on my butt. This is an R-rated movie. He said the word butt. Two seconds after Cage molested a minor, he said the word butt. If they're trying to tie together the scenes with a butt connection, they could have said ass and not make Travolta sound like such a pussy. It's hard to look like a hard-ass cop when you say words like butt. A woman walks in and calls him Sir instead of his character name. This movie refuses to tell us Travolta's character. Whoever he is, he is apparently married because his wife is calling on line one. Meaning the FBI doesn't get many calls if line one is freed up. Or she's been on hold since the office opened. Really makes Travolta seem like a dick. The big black dude from the office scene concerned about credit cards busts into the room and says, Sean! He says other dialogue, but I only focused on that. I'm still not convinced that Travolta is playing the Sean Archer person. It's possible this guy went in the Sean's office, expecting to see Sean Archer, but instead found Travolta in there pretending to be Sean Archer yet again. Or Travolta's character happens to have the same first name. Sean is a common name. The man tells Travolta that Pollux Troy paid for a plane at an airfield. Travolta tells him to get one of the people on the plane and everyone rushes out of the room. We then slowly zoom in on the office phone in which we see extension 1 lighting up on the phone, which will apparently blink forever as nobody is there to pick up the phone. Perhaps Travolta realized picking up the phone and conversing with Sean Archer's wife was a step too far, and he gave up his charade to get to the airfield. While staring at the still frame of the telephone, we realize the FBI has some real numbering problems with their extensions. All of the buttons are labeled in lazily written penmanship. The upper set of buttons are extension A and extension B, which is fine. However, we then skip down to below where they are suddenly numbered instead of alphabetical. Extension 1, extension 2, extension 3, and finally extension 4 to finish up the numbers. Then below them all is a buttonless label that is printed extension, followed by pen written 7-86. Someone at this office bothered to spend the time handwriting these labels, but clearly knew how to print it at the same time. This person is a mystery to me and must live a confusing mess of a life devoid of any sense. They live their day-to-day -day life without any rhyme or reason to their madness. This person is a true anarchist. Maybe Travolta labeled the phone after suffering a nervous breakdown from being stabbed by a vicious horse. So many questions left unanswered. Number one, why start with alphabetical labeling and then switch to numerical? Number two, why start with handwritten but do one single piece in print? Number three, is the last extension a date? Number four, is the last extension the number to dial out? That's a lot of digits just to dial out. Now how do you dial a hyphen? Number five, why am I so obsessed with breaking down the phone labeling? I should move on. A character said something about how Castor isn't at the airfield yet, but Travolta says that Pollux doesn't fly without Big Brother. I assume he's referring to Big Brother as Castor, but considering they are the FBI and are watching them, and mention putting a cop on the plane, I'm not sure Big Brother is in a self-referential line about the Orwellian FBI. Travolta flings on his coat and we hear an audible gush of air that is entirely too loud of a noise for such a light jacket. Either his jacket plays its own sound effects, or Travolta whipped it around his shoulders so fast that the jacket actually jumped Mach 3 and we just heard the sonic boom of the jacket. We switch gears to the tarmac of the Southern California International Airport, wherever that is. Well, obviously it's in the southern part of California, but I've never heard of it. Despite being displayed as an international airport, there are only four people outside and one car driving by in the background, next to the lackluster airport sign which is poorly stuck to the side of a rundown warehouse of a building. 
The building looks more like a shack Gus Fring would go into to discuss a drug deal than a welcome sign for jet-lagged tourists visiting from other countries, who are sure to be disappointed by the bustling airport that has the vibe of a rundown prison. If anyone gets off a plane at this airport and is impressed with the sign, then the rest of their city will put their fragile mind into a coma from which there is no return. We see a pilot walking down the stairs out of the airplane. A black man wearing black sunglasses and all-black leather, leaning up against an all-black car in the Southern California sun. A River Phoenix-looking dude at the rear of the car, staring at the amazing welcome sign. And lastly, a hipster sitting in the back of the convertible with his ass in the trunk of the car. He's holding a silver briefcase and looks like he fell asleep in a Wes Anderson movie and woke up in this one instead. This explains his distant look of confusion. The camera trucks over to get a nice close-up of the hipster who is rubbing his own fingers together in an apparent autistic twitch. He stares out at the rest of the airfield, which, if the welcome sign is any evidence, must be a war zone of broken concrete and rundown planes. A car drives up from behind the hipster with its lights on despite being broad goddamn daylight. The car stops and we switch angles to see the hipster turn around in curiosity. Perhaps he figured out how he managed to escape the Wes Anderson movie. Perhaps he just heard Cage's theme song playing. Because we see Cage get out of the car and a bass-heavy tune starts to play. Is this Cage's theme song? Is he playing it from the car speakers? Is it his ringtone? Is the choir singing a song and bass guitar sound effects still? So many questions. The wind hits Cage and makes his jacket flap in the wind. We hear yet another jacket break the sound barrier as we hear an audible wind gush sound. Are all jackets in this face-off universe equipped with sound effects? What possible purpose would that serve? Cage walks in slow motion toward the men who are moving in regular speed, so it really makes you wonder if Caster Troy has a slow motion superpower. He walks toward them and raises his hand to his side. The black-clad black man walks up to Cage and removes his jacket, which has some severe implications if you ask me. The scar-faced white dude opens a box for Cage, which reveals what can only be described as a mobile junk drawer. Inside the box we see a pair of aviator sunglasses, a baggie of blue pills, three poorly rolled joints, a pack of gum that costs five whole cents, a pack of chiclets, and a folded knife that looks like it was carved straight from an elephant's tusk. The inside of the box has a felt lining which matches Cage's ridiculous outfit, which looks like he wore clothing made from antique furniture. As if he skinned a couch alive and wore his prize to taunt the now naked furniture. A real power move to do in front of the couch's children. The twin chairs. We see a close-up of Cage and see that he already has a pair of sunglasses on. Well, we saw them before, but now they're more relevant. He must be rich if he owns two pairs of sunglasses. The man finally finishes removing the coat from Cage and reveals two things. Actually, three things. Two gold-plated guns that look like if you put them on the wall of a Chinese buffet, they would camouflage in instantly. Cage's ass. That was the third thing that was revealed. Not that you're into that, but if you are, it's there. If you're not, then it'll be over shortly. Just stare at the shiny guns and it'll be over soon. I also want to mention the fact that the movie posits the idea that Cage can't take off his own coat or open his own box, but apparently is not codependent enough to need a driver. This movie is wildly inconsistent in every scene. This movie cannot be trusted. Cage reaches into his toy box while the hipster bitches about Cage being 26 minutes late. He switches out his worn sunglasses for the pair out of the box. The biggest surprise of the movie so far is that they are not the aviator shades that they appeared to be. Instead, they are red-tinted John Lennon-esque glasses that make Cage just look fucking ridiculous. Cage has gold cufflinks, a gold watch, gold rings on four of his fingers, and now these red-tinted octagon glasses that look like they provide no actual protection from the sun. Pollux reveals to Cage that he got bored and booked the plane himself instead of letting the subordinates do it. We, the audience, already know that this is a bad idea because the FBI is coming for this exact reason. For once, we are one step ahead of the movie and it feels fantastic. Wait, what? Cage bends down to tie Pollux's hipster shoes. Why? Is he some sort of childlike moron? 
Pollux looks ashamed of this, and he goddamn should be. He's a grown man. A grown man wearing tan corduroy pants and round glasses. Grow the fuck up, Pollux. Even the man that can't be bothered to take off his own coat and put on another coat has to tie your shoes? This should be an eye-opening moment, Pollux. Castor tells Pollux, If I didn't love you so damn much, I'd have to kill you, bro. Provides an insight as to what Cage considers a capital offense. Shoes being untied is a step too far for this man. Also, Cage calls him bro, so that we know he's his brother. Because we are the audience and we are stupid. Thank you, film, for the constant reminders. Pollux must agree with me because then he states that he hates it when Cage calls him bro. I have very mixed feelings about Pollux. Castor then pulls out a money clip full of cash. The money clip is obviously a gold dragon skull because why the hell wouldn't it be? It's in Cage's pocket and he's apparently allergic to anything not gold. When he pulls it out, we hear a rattlesnake sound effect. Why does everything in this universe has its own strange sound effect? Nothing here makes sense. He taunts his men with his money and tells them it'll be smoggy downtown in the 18th. I'm not sure what this means, but maybe it's just Castor giving a weather forecast? Whatever it meant, it was hilarious because Pollux breaks up laughing. We cut to see a woman on a cell phone talking about how her passengers are there. She looks like she's in the back of a camper, but the passengers part makes me think this is supposed to be the inside of the plane. We see Castor and his men pour into a plane, but have no frame of reference, so the woman might have been completely unrelated to the scene. Another theory shot down as the woman walks up to Cage after he does a sing-song impatient rant about wanting to leave early. She asks Cage if he would like anything once they're airborne, and he finally looks at her. He says, oh, a peach. Are peaches his mid-flight meal? What a sloppy meal to eat in an airplane that looks so pristine and napkinless. Cage invites the woman to sit in his lap, and for some reason she obeys. He tells her he could eat a peach for hours, because women are impressed with a man's fruit-eating stamina. Scientists have found only one tonic to increase your fruit-eating stamina. That tonic is a mixture of NyQuil and cocaine. What happens next is an encounter that I think should actually be censored even in this book, but we both know that isn't going to happen. Cage asks the woman that if he were to let her suck his tongue, would she be grateful? The woman not only doesn't quit her job, but she actually proceeds to suck his tongue like it was her sole purpose in life. Maybe she thought it would be soaked in peach juices, as a tongue would be, after eating a single peach for hours? It seems like this when I wonder what is scripted and what is Cage improvising. cage improvising? Impro-caging? I'll probably toggle back and forth between the two. The movie then has the common decency to end the scene as Tongue Sucker Jones fillets his mouthworm like it will fix decades of fatherly neglect. Until next time, and in the meantime, I'm Phoenix West. So long, citizens. I'll be back with a low-rent Captain America. Inside the box, we see a pair... Pierre. We, we see a bear. Oh, God, we see a sweet pair of aviators, sunglasses. Oh, God, they, and there's some Mountain Dew, some Pops in there. Oh, God, they're so good. And sugary and treat. Oh, they're so good. Oh, God.